0: So let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 3 from verse 1 until verse 15. And then I'll pray, and then we'll explore this passage together. For those who don't have a copy of God's Word, it will be on the screen behind me. The preacher writes, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, A time to seek and a time to lose. lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sew, A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time of love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And God seeks what has been driven away. And we'll finish our reading of God's word there. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to our hearts already this morning in the psalm and in the singing of your praises and in the prayers for the various references to your word have been quoted but we come to the high point of our worship service where we take time to hear from you so we ask oh god that your spirit would help us to receive these words not as the words of men but as what they are the words of you the living god we ask that you would give us eyes to understand and to see wonderful truths out of your law and we pray, O oh God, ultimately that you would, you would help us to fix our eyes upon you, to have a grander vision of who you are, our sovereign, triune God. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. Well, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes are, are perhaps the most well-known verses in the entire book. In fact, it's common for non Christians to have this poem read at their funerals because it beautifully captures the various seasons of life. In verses 1 to 8, the writer of Ecclesiastes known to us as the preacher, poetically describes the times which are typical of life in a fallen world. Remember that recurring phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, life under the sun, life under heaven. It refers to life right now, life after the garden of Eden and before Eden restored. So he he poetically describes the times which are typical of life in a fallen world. Now, most people stop reading at verse 8, but the preacher carries on and reflects upon the themes in verses 9 to 15, and this shift in genre from poetry to prose provides the direction for our message today. We will first look at the times poetically, then we will look beyond the times in the prose and then we will think about our response to the times. So we'll look at the times, we will look beyond the times, and then we will look at our response to the times. Notice how the preacher first looks at the times in verses 1 to 8. After his opening line, the preacher provides seven verses consisting of 28 statements, which are separated into 14 pairs, known as merisms, now you may be wondering, well, what is amerism? Well, a consists of, of two opposite pairs which refer to the whole. And we know this from the, the very first verse in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the author tells us that God created the, the heavens and the earth to polar opposites. It's not just that that he created, but it's describing two opposites which, which, uh, which, which are used to describe the whole. And by using 14 merisms in Ecclesiastes chapter three, the preacher describes every season of life under heaven, every possible time which we as humans could experience while living in a fallen world. These statements are descriptions, not prescriptions. So we can't justify murder by quoting verse three and saying, well, there's a time to kill. No, it's, it's, it's a poem, it's observations. The preacher is simply recording reality as he looks at the times. Now, keeping with his uh, propensity for multiples of seven, I think we can make at least seven quick observations about his statements. They'll be on the screen behind me. So listen along, take a photo whenever they're all, they're all up. Take a photo now and let's follow along. Observation number one, life seasons... Are experienced by all. Now, not every human will experience every season of life, but every human can experience every season of life because the times are part of life under heaven. They are part of life in a fallen world. The rich die, so do the poor. The righteous embrace, so do the unrighteous. The young experience the effects of peace, and so do the old. The times are experienced by all. Number two, life seasons <coughs> are expected and unexpected. You may think that's contradictory. How can one thing be expected and unexpected? Well, that's the point in the poem. These things are contra- con- contradictory. Sometimes we, we, we are prepared for a, for, for a situation and sometimes we aren't prepared for it. So take, for example, uh, pregnancy, a time for birth. Some couples uh, prepare and plan to get pregnant and some, well, they don't plan and they get pregnant anyway. The same farmer who, who planned to plant his crop doesn't expect in a couple of weeks to pluck it up early because of a disease. The times can be expected and they can also be unexpected. Observation number three, Life seasons are ever-changing. For some people, one season changes to the opposite season and then back to another season and then to another season in such a short period of time. Some of you know this, don't you? I think of a, a friend of mine from Bible college who, who experienced this in a matter of a few weeks. One Saturday, he was at a church with his family celebrating his marriage to his wife. And only a few Saturdays later, he was at the same church with his family, mourning the sudden loss of his dad. We were with Tim and Jackie yesterday, and Tim was saying how he walked out once, I think it was in Italy, out of a church building, celebrating a funeral of of the life of someone taken maybe far too short. And right across the street in another uh, church, People are celebrating the wedding of someone's life beginning. Life seasons, the times, are ever-changing. Fourthly, life seasons are temporary. They are temporary because the seasons change. Every season is temporary. Although some seasons may be longer than others, they will eventually come to an end. We saw this last week in our psalm, didn't we? Psalm 30, verse uh, 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. There's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. And perhaps you need to hear this today to realize that there is light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know when it will be. No one knows when it will be. But the preacher's observations show us that there will be light at the end of the tunnel because the times are temporary. Number five, life seasons are instructive. They serve a didactic purpose. We can learn lessons from every season of life. In a time of war, for example we learn once again how broken our world is and how sinful we are as human beings. Or when someone close to us dies, a a beloved family member or, or a close friend, we realize yet again the shortness of life and are forced to think about eternity. That's why the preacher says later on in Ecclesiastes that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why? Because at the time for weeping and a time for mourning, we can learn lessons. Can I ask you today, is there perhaps something that you can learn from the season of your life that you're currently living in? As observation tells us that there are things that we can learn. So what can you learn from the season of life that you're in? The times are instructive. Number six, life seasons are distinct. And what I mean by this is that different seasons require different emotions and different circumstances require different actions. Think about this with me. It would be highly inappropriate to laugh when your friend has just been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Wouldn't it? It's not appropriate for that circumstance. Likewise it would be it would be wrong uh, for for the parents in the room, it would be wrong to remain silent when your child has drugs in their bike. You may say that's a bit extreme, but that's a common occurrence. Wouldn't be appropriate for that situation. That's a time to speak, not a time to be silent. Or for all of us, it would be silly to throw away your bank card when you need to keep it to access your money. Because as verse um, 5 says, verse for, for 6, a time to keep and there's a time to cast away. And often many of us, I think, need to acknowledge the seasons that we are in and to act Appropriately because sometimes we are inappropriate in the situations. We've either had to learn this the hard way, or we've realized it ourselves. The times are distinct. And number seven, life seasons are repetitive. Although this poem is, it's wonderfully composed, and yet it's a bit repetitive, isn't it? I read it, you heard me read it. A time for this and a time for that. A time for this and a time for that. A time for this and a time for that. Even my points are very repetitive. Life seasons are, life seasons are, life seasons are. And over and over it goes. And yes, the seasons of life change, but we're still slaves to them. We come from one season and into another season we have a good time before a bad time. Then we are back to a good time before another bad time comes. We are controlled by life seasons and we can't break free from them. That's why one commentary, uh, um, Derek Kinder's commentary in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, he entitles that, that, that section, the tyranny of time. It's oppressive because the times are repetitive. And it's this seventh observation that I believe causes the preacher to ask his question in verse 9. Look at it with me. What gain has the worker from all his toil? Answer? Nothing. I've thought about this opening week, chapter 1. There is nothing to be gained from all our work in every season of life. Why? Because of the preacher's motto. Everything in life is vanity. It's passing, therefore it's pointless. And it's this question that I believe moves the preacher to look beyond the times. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the point in the text where, where the poetry shifts to the prose, marking from uh, moving from description and going to reflection. And that's what the preacher does in verses 9 to 15. He looks beyond the times. You see, the preacher reflects on the times, and he realizes two problems. First, he realizes that we as humans can't understand the times. Look at the middle of verse 11. The preacher writes also, God has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He's saying that we are created beings with limited knowledge so we will never be able to make sense of the times. No matter how hard we try to do it, chapter 8, he talks about this. no, no, No matter how much wisdom we have or how much effort we put into explaining the times, we can't do it. We will never be able to explain why we are in certain seasons and why we aren't in other seasons. The preacher also realizes that we can't control the times. I thought about this a few weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 14, where the preacher described life as a, as a striving after wind. Literally, I said the phrase means shepherding the wind. We try to shepherd our schedule. And we try to control our time into one-year plans and five-year plans and ten-year plans. But we can't do it. Seasons come which we don't want to come. Sometimes we don't want to come just yet. And where there are other seasons which end, which we don't want to end. All because we, as created beings, can't control the time. And these two problems highlight that we are limited creatures, don't they? They highlight that we can't do everything we want to. We may have the desire to do it, but it's not possible. And this truth about our limitation forces us to ask if there is something, or, or more precisely, is there someone else beyond the times? Is there someone else beyond the times? I'm sure you're, you've heard of C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah? Well, two facts about C.S. Lewis. Number one, he was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, where I'm from, which is awesome, claim the fame here. But number two, uh, he was a theologian, a Christian theologian, and he wrote many books. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote these words, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So that's his, that's his argument. And then he begins to explain his argument. A baby feels... Hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling, a bird, wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. And then he goes on to, 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 to follow that argument. And he says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. In other words, Lewis is saying that our, 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 our desires, they are pointing beyond themselves. They're pointing us to something else, to someone else. So the fact that we can't explain, or the fact that we can't control the times, even though we want to, well, according to Lewis, reveals that, that we were made For another world, it points us beyond the times to the author of the times, to God, the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. He alone knows and He alone controls the time. God has, in fact, put eternity into your heart and into my heart, verse 11, so that we will realize our limits and look. To him, another uh, book um, written on this, a guy called Zach Eiswine, very, very good and helpful books on Ecclesiastes. And his main thesis is that that it's it's after Eden and before Eden restored. When you hear that language, I'm quoting Zach Eiswine, but he basically says that Eden is still within our veins. It's still within our blood. We remember what we once had, whether we acknowledge it or not, and realize what we're missing out on. Because God has put eternity into our hearts. And we've been working through Ecclesiastes over the past weeks. And God, well, he hasn't been mentioned much by the preacher, has he? That's why sometimes it's depressing listening to me in particular. Yet did you notice that there are almost ten references to God in verses 9 to 15? So we haven't had much references before in chapters 1 and chapter 2. But now here in a short uh, amount of time, in short space, there are almost 10 references to God. So we have to ask why. Why is he doing that? Because that's the preacher's point. It's not about time management. It's not about a new year schedule as some church calendars put it into the new year. No, the main point is that God is in control of the times. The main point of the poetry and of the prose is that our times are in God's hands. Look at the beginning of verse 11. Verse 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He, who, God, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Those words everything and time should be going ding, ding, ding in our heads because they bring us back to the opening verse in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So the preacher is reflecting on his observations and concludes that God is the author of the times, that God allows seasons, that he appoints seasons to come for however long he has purposed them to come for. Look at verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. It's a statement of of the universal sovereignty of Almighty God. That God's ways are perfect. That God's ways are final. That God knows and God controls and God appoints the times. To illustrate this, Think about the first merism in verse two. What's it say? Time to be born and a time to die. So let me ask you, what part did you play in your birth? None whatsoever. No one asked you if you wanted to be born, but a time came when you were born. It was a time appointed by God. God knew the, the exact circumstances surrounding your birth. He knew if you would be conceived in wedlock or outside of wedlock. He knew who your parents would be. And he even knew how you would be born. Every single day of our lives, the psalmist says, are known by God before any of them come to pass. Why? Because God is our sovereign creator. And the Apostle Paul makes this exact point in Galatians 4, 4 4-5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, at that moment, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. The same is true of your death, isn't it? Hands up if you know the, the day that you will die. Do you know how you will die? Do you know how you will react in the moments before you take your final breath? No. None of us know. We may be diagnosed with a terminal illness, so we have a little bit of knowledge, but we don't know how that diagnosis is going to progress. We have no idea when that day will come. But God does. He gives life at his appointed time and takes life away at his appointed time. Acts thirteen thirty six. I remember preaching through Paul's first missionary journey, and this verse just struck me, just just hit me so much, and I find it so encouraging. Acts thirteen thirty six describes how after David had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with the fathers. David died at God's appointed time, not a second too early or a second too late. He died after he had served the purposes of our sovereign creator, the author of the times. And you say, Well, Alex, are the seasons of life then simply the result of fate? What happens, happens. That's it. Well, no, they aren't. You see, faith is, it's blind, it's impersonal, it's purposeless. But God in his sovereignty providentially directs everything to bring about his eternal purposes. And God's purposes are totally in line with his loving and with his good character. They are for his glory and for our good. Look at verse 11 again. At, right at the beginning, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. It's appropriate. In other words, God knows the final outcome. He knows the big picture for the engineers in the room. He, he knows the blueprints and he knows how best to get us there. This means that for us as Christians, no season is accidental or useless because every season, the good and the bad, as well as the helpful and the absolutely frustrating, every season is appointed by God to conform us more and more into the image, the beautiful image of his son and our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things, the right and the wrong, the hurtful and the easy, our sin and people's sin to us, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So brothers and sisters in Christ, our good and our loving God is in control of the times. He is the Lord the author of the times. The life of Joseph illustrates this perfectly. We'll have at some point, I don't know when, but at some point, even at River of Life, to preach the Joseph narratives. And and Joseph's story is is recorded at the end of Genesis. There was a time when, when Joseph was on the green pasture, shepherding his father's sheep with his brothers. It was a time of laughing. It was a time of dancing. It was a good time. And then Joseph spent a short time in a pit where, where, where he was beaten and he was bloodied because his brothers beat him and threw him into that pit. He was then sold and spent time in the house of Potiphar in the land of Egypt. Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of immorality and he was thrown into prison for some time. He was then released from prison at a time. And he was brought into the palace where he spent the rest of his time in Egypt. And the question is, how should we understand the various seasons in Joseph's life? From the pastures to the pit, from the pit to Potiphar's house, from Potiphar's house in the prison, and from prison to the palace. How do we understand this? Were they simply um, unfortunate events? Was Joseph an unlucky guy? No. Joseph tells us in Genesis fifty twenty, speaking to his brothers, the ones who threw him in that pit, which led to all these times, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Genesis chapter 45 is clear as well. Same thing. God sent me before you. Who, who sent them? Well, it was the brothers that started this, human responsibility, but then God sent them. And like the preacher in Ecclesiastes 3, Joseph looked beyond the times to the author of the times. He trusted our sovereign. That are good and that our loving God knows the times, controls the times, and appoints the times for his good purposes. What about our response to the times? How should we respond to the truth that, that God is in control of the times forever? Well, have a look at verse 14 at the end. The preacher writes... God has done it, so people fear before him. God has done it, so, purpose clause, people fear before him. God controls the times so that we may fear him. In the wisdom literature of the Bible, to fear God is to worship God appropriately because of who he is. It is to acknowledge that that he is the creator and that we are the creature. Since the fall and the rebellion in the Garden of Eden, we are all born sinful and we sin against our creator in thought and in word and in deed. We no longer fear God anymore. We don't honor God as God. We don't thank God as our creator. In fact, instead of worshiping our creator, we worship created things around us. To fear God, however means to admit that we have rebelled against our sovereign creator and then to worship him as our loving redeemer. The New Testament reveals that that we honor, that we fear the father by honoring the one he sent, by honoring his son. And we do this by, by admitting our sins to God and by trusting Jesus as our only savior and Lord. And if you're not a Christian, Today. Joining us for the first time, welcome. But this directly speaks to you because this is how you should respond to all that you've heard. Respond by by bowing your knee to King Jesus, admitting that you have sinned against your sovereign creator and accept him as your loving redeemer. Admit that that you can't know or control the times and accept that God can because he is the author of the times. It may well even be that God has brought you to River of Life Church in Frankfurt for this season so that you may come to know him personally by faith in his son, Jesus. Because that's why we exist in the city, to invite as many people as possible to know, love, and follow Jesus. So come to him. His arms are open. Come to him and find purpose in your life. And for those who are Christians this morning, those who have taken that initial step of bowing the knee and confessing Christ as their Savior and Lord, well, we must continue to worship God appropriately because of who he is. Practically, we can, we can do this by, by acknowledging that every good gift comes from his hand, whether it's food or drink as described in verses 12 or 13, or whether it's a time to love or a time to hate, that all things come from him because he is the author of the times. Also, we must realize that, that God understands the times because he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus experienced life in a fallen world and can sympathize with us in whatever season we find ourselves in. So you say, Alex, I'm rejoicing at the moment. Sometimes Christianity seems so boring. Can Jesus rejoice with me? Well, yeah, Jesus rejoices with those who rejoice because he enjoyed a time of celebration on earth at a wedding in Canaan. Some of you are like, Alex, can Jesus understand the pain, the weeping, the mourning that I feel? Jesus weeps with those who weep because he wept at the grave of his friend, Lazarus. Alex, I'm just so tempted all the time. And I give way all the time to that temptation that so easily entangles me. How can Jesus help me in that? Well, Jesus can help us in a, in a time of temptation because he experienced a time of temptation in the wilderness. He overcame for us. Alex, can, can Jesus really relate to, to the busy life here in Frankfurt? You don't know what it's like climbing the corporate ladder and the hours that I put in. Surely Jesus doesn't know that. Jesus does. Jesus understands the busyness of life because he had crowds with him from sunrise to sunset for an intense period of time of three years. Kids, maybe you're listening. Maybe you're not. Maybe you are listening. And you're saying, I don't know how to love my mom and dad. How do I obey them when I just don't want to? Well, Jesus knows because he too grew up. He honored perfectly his father and his mother, earthly father and mother, Mary and Joseph. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our response to the times. We are to worship him appropriately because of who he is. And how do we know who he is? By reading the truths in the Bible. Everything I say comes straight from the gospel accounts. And then we will realize that the author of the times really does understand the times we live in as we draw to a close i wonder if uh, during the sermon uh, your mind has gone back to the psalm we read at the beginning of our service you see in in god's timing his providential timing we read psalm 31 today Listen again to what David said in Psalm 31, verses 14 to 15. We didn't navigate this and say, oh yeah, we're going to preach on this. I didn't even know what I was going to preach this message on. This is this is where the Lord's led me. But listen to what David says, Psalm 31, our Psalm, verse 14 to 15. But I trust you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. David trusted God because he knew that his times were in God's hands. And perhaps our only response today as Christians is simply to trust God with whatever situation we are in, believing that our times are in God's hands. Now, this isn't a call to to suppress your emotions. Remember observation number six, the seasons of life are distinct Some seasons, Ecclesiastes 3, require weeping and some require mourning. Other seasons, well, they require laughing and they require rejoicing. But it is a call for us to acknowledge that God controls the seasons of life. He is the author of the times, so we can trust him in the times, even when we don't understand the times. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for answered prayer. We want to thank you for helping us to work through this passage. And Lord, we ask that your spirit may continue to direct our steps, that he may continue to show us how how to put these words into practice. As James says, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but that we would do doers also. Help us all, Lord, in our individual circumstances to to acknowledge our limitations and to accept that you are the, the author of the times so we can trust you in the times. We thank you, Lord, that nothing is accidental. And for those who are joining us for the first time today, Father, we want to thank you for them being here with us. And, Lord, you know their hearts. You know where they stand with you and we ask that today would be a time, a day of their salvation as they, as they trust Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it's in his name we pray these things.